Please open your Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 20. My title for this evening is Ambassadors in a Pagan World. Ambassadors in a Pagan World. Verse 20 of chapter 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Wednesday morning, we challenged, we threw out the challenge that, that God threw out to the Sardis church, that we should not be just a get-along people, one that just blends with society, but we did not give you the tools that morning so that we wouldn't blend. The intention of this service this evening, or of this sermon this evening, is to give us three different points that could be helpful in keeping us from blending into a pagan society. And we use tonight as our role model, Daniel. And so if you would, uh, before we do that, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. We pick up a couple of scriptures here, a couple of verses here, and then we'll go back to our main character of the evening, Daniel. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says... Do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I love this passage. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we're not hiding we're in, but we're not of. In the midst, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So it's very clear that we're not meant to be hermits in the society. The issue of separation and nonconformity, which is one of your classes here, I will not, I would, that's a very, very important concept that I believe every individual Christian needs to address at some time in his life, come to a point, there has to be a point of separation. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We, are, we need to continue to remember that we are in a crooked and perverse nation, among whom we are intended to shine as lights in the world. We're not meant to blend. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, Turn me in the book of Daniel, and I'm going to use Daniel as a character tonight and pull out three things that I see in the way that Daniel lived and the way he acted in that generation and in that time that I believe spared him from the judgment that came to Babylon during his lifetime. It's interesting to note that Daniel survived not only the kingdom of Babylon, but he was incorporated into the media Persia rulership also, which seems, in my mind, seems rather unusual. But we'll look at more of that. Chapter 6 of Daniel, it tells us, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, 
He went into his house, and his windows being open in the chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Daniel had some time prior to coming to Babylon, he had established some proper habits. He had established a way of relating to his God. We're not told exactly what that was all like. If you, will look in second, if you would look in 2 Kings chapter 24, you will find the setting in which, from which Daniel was pulled out of. In his reign, in the time that he would have been at Jerusalem, there were evil kings. So he did not have the setting in the background of having a comfortable kingdom that was all into serving God in his original place among the Jews in his home place in Israel. That's not the way it was. There were three successive kings that were doing evil. And then God sends Nebuchadnezzar in there as a way of bringing Israel to its knees. And in that setting, Daniel is then brought, and you will look in, if you look in chapter 24 of 2 Kings, you will find that there were at least 10,000 of Israel that were brought into Babylon. Now, on that journey from Israel to Babylon, I don't know what was going through their minds. I don't know what you would be thinking if you would be taken captive by a hostile nation. What would you expect? It was not unusual for those who were captured to be taken home to the homeland of those who had conquered them. And as they are there, at that point, they then put them to death as a show to their home people. So as Daniel and his friends, or his, those that were with him, were journeying from Israel to Babylon, it would seem to me that very likely they were uncertain what the intention was. What was King Nebuchadnezzar intending to do with them? Really, what was the plan? But... Let's go back into chapter 1 of Daniel, and we pick up in chapter 1 in verse 1, and we're going to read the first eight verses here to give us a bit more of a setting. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim of King Judah, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, and that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and counting and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Their intention here is very clear now. They want these, the ones they were choosing, they want them brought into the kingdom, into the, seems like almost the very palace itself, with the intent of teaching them the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. They were looking and they're saying, okay, these men have some potential 
to build into the kingdom of Babylon. We can use this kind of man in our kingdom. And so that is why they chose. And we don't know how many they chose, but we know there were at least four. Daniel and his three friends. And we have, it's thrilling to read through the book of Daniel, where we have challenges that apply to every people of all time. When you look at how they stood, Daniel in the den of lions, when the three Hebrew children, as they were in that fiery furnace, as they were cast into the fiery furnace, tried because they would not bow to the idol who they refused to believe in. Their allegiance was to God, and they would not be shaken in that. What was it that kept them clear in all of that? You realize today that Satan's intent today is that you would learn of the world. His intent today that you would have the language of the world. He has the same intent. He's not using King Nebuchadnezzar to do it today. But he's using Mr. Google and everything else today to keep you and to blame you and to push you into the mold of the world today. And so the tools may be a little bit different, but the intention is the same. But God is calling us as his people to be a separate people, to be a people that are strong, with an allegiance that is firm. And what is it that you must do if you would be surviving in a pagan community? We are living in a pagan world today. There is no question whatsoever. We are living in a pagan world today. Let's read on. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's daily meat and of the wine which he drank, the very things that he himself was drinking, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. I would ask you the question tonight, would it have been wrong for Daniel and his friends to eat and to drink? what the king was offering them. After all, all, I believe it was the king's hospitality, his goodwill toward them. He was issuing them the best. Would it have been wrong for them to accept that hospitality? Read on. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unto whom the prince of the Enoch gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and of Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the, the wine which he drank, Therefore he requested of the princes of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Again, I ask the question, would it have been wrong for Daniel to take what the king was offering? I'm not totally clear on that, but my reasoning is it would not have been wrong. We don't really know what the rest of the 10,000 that were brought in from Israel, or Judah, I guess Judah specifically, what they did with this. Maybe they weren't offered the same privileges. But these four 
purposed in their heart. And that's the first thing that I'm pointing out tonight. That kept Daniel, it insulated him from the issues of the pagan world. He had a purpose of heart. And he did not draw the line necessarily at how close and how much he could do to absorb the kingdom of Babylon. He wasn't looking to see how close he could be like someone in Babylon. But he drew the line at a spot, as I look at it, from my perspective, at a spot that it would seem like, Daniel, you wouldn't have had to be that conservative. But he said, I don't want to defile myself with the king's meat. He determined that there was a spot, there was something that if I do that, it's going to deaden my senses. It's going to make me better able to be absorbed into the kingdom of Babylon. It will soften me in some way from the purposes that God would want me to do. And I need this line to keep me sharp. And tonight I believe there are many of us that have the mentality, what's wrong with it? And if it's not wrong, no problem. But I believe that that mentality softens us up to the point that it becomes easy for us to step across the line of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world. And that's why I see as Daniel drew that line, he and his, he and his friends, we have the success stories of how God spared them from the den of lions and from the fiery furnace and how God gave them wisdom in the midst of the world, of a pagan world. We have that testimony with us and it rings clear to everyone that reads it. This book is a challenge and a blessing to all of God's people who have come acquainted with it. And tonight I want to say, in the world that we live, there is much that would beckon us and would pull us and would want to absorb, to bring us right into the place where we would be absorbed into the culture of the world. And it is imperative that every one of us draws a line at some place. A line at some place. Not necessarily the line of wrong and right but a line of discipline that this will make me a better servant of Jesus Christ. And therefore I'm drawing the line right here. If the only line we draw is the issue of absolute wrong and absolute right, there's absolutely no cushion no cushion. You see, in this generation that we live, we have had a government that has drawn a line, or did, had drawn the line at least. The lines are changing. There were certain laws that were there that would keep you safe even though you may not have been a Christian. There were certain laws of wrong and right the Ten Commandments were largely enforced within the legal society at some point. 
Well, that has vanished, and that line has kept being moved. As the governments and world have redefined and changed the definition of what is wrong and right. Adultery at one point was basically unheard of in the United States. Well, today, that is not the case. Many, many things like that. It was not that the people of those days were Christian necessarily. No. Even our founding fathers, if you look at the founding fathers as those who would call this Christian nation, you will find that they would not make freedom of religion as a separation of church and state. They did it because they did not want the, the conscience of any individual to be violated whichever way he wanted to live. And so those freedoms were written in, not so much to defend the Christian walk of life as it was to defend the individual freedom of a right to choose how you want to think. Over the years, as the nations have moved, the definition of what is wrong and right, the redefining of all of that has brought about an area of grayness. Where we live, we live, okay, so it's been redefined, and so they're going to redefine it again. They will keep redefining. They will keep redefining. Because the natural tendency of man is to always push the line. But Daniel saw that he could not live in that way. And if you and I have the mentality to always push the line and walk as close to the cliff as we can and still not fall over, it's a very, very dangerous place and a very, very dangerous way to live. So I submit to you tonight, Daniel would not have had to draw that line at that point. He could have made it, moved it somewhere else, I feel. Maybe there's something I don't understand. But that's what I see as I look into this passage. Interesting to think about that. I look at a scripture in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen. Be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. My friends, if you and I adopt the culture of the world, we will inherit their fears. We will inherit their fears. The fear that the world entertained, much of them have to do with not understanding God and His ways. When God gives us over 63 times, 60 some times I believe in the Scripture, God says, fear not. Fear is one of the tools of Satan. And in the culture of the world, the world abounds in fear. God is calling His people to be delivered, and the culture of the world is a fearful culture. It's a culture of fear. Look at another character in Genesis chapter 39. <clears throat> Joseph is another character, a godly character, and I want to look at something that he said. He drew the line too. He had a very interesting perspective in chapter 39 when he was under temptation in verse 8, verse 7. And it came to pass after those days 
that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth not what with me in, is with me in the house, and he hath committed to me all that he hath in my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. But then, how then can I do this and sin against God? I don't know of a way that Joseph could have given a better answer than he did. It covered the basis on three, in three areas. First, he says, there is an issue. I am duty-bound. I have a responsibility to my master. And that responsibility and that authority does not include you, his wife. There's that trust that that man has given to me. I will not step across that line of trust. Secondly, there's the bond of marriage. You are his wife. I have no right to you. And thirdly, if that fails, there's God. How can do I do this wickedness against God? The three issues that he had very clearly in mind that helped him survive in that pagan world. I have a point of responsibility. I have a charge that has been given to me across which I will not step. Secondly, there is the moral law of God. I will not cross that line. And thirdly, I will give account to God. Daniel and Joseph had the same mentality, and that's how they could survive in a pagan world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what communion hath light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We are in the world, but not, never forget we are not of the world. And therefore we do not want to blend into the culture of society and of the world. Another scripture we can look at very briefly before we move on to the next point. Revelation chapter 18 in verse 4. Powerful word. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that she be not partaker of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. My friends, tonight, the reason we need a clear line across which we will not stop, we will not step, is because in stepping across that line, we become a part of the world system, and we will receive the plagues that are given, going to be given to the world. We don't want to inherit their fears and their plagues. We've got to step a line, make a line that keeps us safe, keeps us safe, and guards against that issue. Secondly, going back to Daniel chapter 2, I give you this next point. In the chapter, if we had time, we'd spend a little more time here. We don't have the time to do it. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house 
and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and they that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret of that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in the night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I just preached out of this passage in, of Daniel 2 on Sunday, and I was in there a lot of the Sunday. I'd love to do that tonight. I don't have time for that. But as I look into this, Daniel refused to depend upon the knowledge of Babylon. He chose to tap into the wisdom of God instead. The knowledge of Babylon was not going to be enough in this situation. You see, the king had asked those wise men to interpret the dream, but not only that, he said, tell me the dream first. I've forgotten the dream. You tell me the dream. Now, that was a scary thing, and I suppose the rest of the wise men were saying, this guy's wanting to kill us. He's wanting to get rid of us. Why, nobody's ever done such a thing. That's ridiculous. How in the world? He can't remember his own dream. We're supposed to tell him his dream. How's this? Well, it was, really. You could say it's unreasonable. But this king was not known to be reasonable. And let me tell you, the world is not known to be reasonable. This king was not reasonable. And so Daniel had... He realized, hey, the knowledge of Babylon is never going to get me through. The rest of the wise men of Babylon, they have the knowledge of Babylon, I, I suspect. I suppose they had it or they would not have been where they were. But Daniel says, this is not going to be enough for us. We're going to need the wisdom of God. And tonight, you and I need to be very clear. That's the second point that I bring to you. We're not, we should not be tapping into only the knowledge of the world. While it is good for us to educate ourselves and to be as informed as we can be, I believe it is imperative we realize that there is the wisdom of God that supersedes anything that the knowledge of man would ever bring to us. We will never be prepared for the unknown by only the knowledge of man. Being politically alerted to what is happening within the nation will not prepare you for the onslaughts against the faith of your, that your personal faith. They will not prepare you or keep you safe in the day of battle when Satan in his satanic onslaughts against the kingdom of God is seeking to draw you and absorb you into the culture of the world. Therefore, I'm sure that's why you're at Bible school. You're looking not to tap into the culture of society. You're looking to tap into the wisdom of God. Matthew chapter 17. This passage in Scripture is one of the highlights during the time of Christ. There's a couple things that if I would have if I could have lived during the time of Christ, there were two events that I certainly would not, I would have loved to be a part of. And one of them here is in Matthew chapter 17. Here's what it says in verse 1. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain, and was transfigured before them, 
and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and, Eli and Elias unto them. Moses and Elias talking with them. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou, had, if thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. I'm going to stop right there. There was Moses and Elijah. Now Moses was the one that was a type. Well, he was the giver of the, the lawgiver. He was known as the man of the law. Then you have Elijah, who was considered the biggest or the greatest of the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets. And then you have Jesus. These three were together at the Mount of Transfiguration. What is the message for us today? The message came very clearly. As Peter was speaking, and he, he was the speaker, and when he didn't know what to say, he just said, he at least said something. He didn't just stay quiet, he said something. He was saying, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's have a, a, a temple, tabernacle here for the law. Let's have a tabernacle here for the prophets, and one for you. And then, there was a voice out of heaven. And what did that voice say? This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. The day of the law and the prophets has passed. You have here a bigger and better word than the law and the prophets. Hear ye him. What a thrill. What a message that would have been. I would have loved to have been there at that moment. And to hear that, that affirmation. But now let's go back into the scriptures and we look at it and pick up another scripture in Luke chapter 24. This is another one of those settings. I would have loved to be there. You know what? Very briefly here. We trusted, these are the two from Emmaus, that it had been him which should have redeemed Israel. Oh, they were walking, and as Jesus came to them and he said, don't you, they said to him, don't you know what's going on? The, the issue was Jesus was the only one that did know what was going on. It wasn't, they, they didn't understand what was going on. And as they proceeded on through, he, he said, what things? And he goes to their house and he expounds, this is the thing, he expounds to them the scriptures beginning from the beginning the things concerning him, and he walked them through the Old Testament. I would have loved to have been there to hear that. I wonder what he said. But what did he do? He picked up bread. He blessed it. He broke it, and he gave it to them. It's exactly what he did at the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 10. And when he did that, they were like, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. What a moment. Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? The opening of the scriptures should be burning our hearts, my friends. That's the wisdom of God brought to us. And then we have in the book of 2 Peter, 
chapter 1, we have this word. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private in proper uh, interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. My friends, tonight, the word that we have is not a cunningly devised fable, he said. We have a more sure word of prophecy, even than the prophets of old. We have a more sure word of prophecy tonight than what the law is. We have the age of grace ushered in by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The wisdom of God is with us. There is no excuse in this day when we have one, two, three, and even four copies, personal copies of the scriptures, and if we don't know it, and we don't reflect in it and make it our wisdom, we have no excuse. The wisdom of God, how we need it. Racing with the clock, please. Turn me back to Daniel. We pick up the third point. Chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 44. Now we have a prophecy to Daniel. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God speaking to Daniel, still in context of the dream that he'd given to Nebuchadnezzar, he's given this word to him, and if you would look in chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel, you would have more exposition on these very issues here. God delivered to the pagan king that there is going to be a rock that is you and a stone, a huge stone that is hewn out of the rock and it's going to tumble. And the gold head of Babylon, the silver shoulders of Medo-Persia, the bronze of Greece, and the iron of Rome, that stone is going to tumble and crush and break to powder all of those kingdoms. And if you look, it's really interesting. If you look at the toes, partly of iron and partly of clay, that would not stick together. That is divided Rome or divided Europe. And to this day, there have been efforts to unite, and you still have France, Spain, England. They are, yeah, they're there but they're not under one government. Prophesied right here in the book of Daniel. And if you look at those who have tried, who have tried to unite Europe, there are many. And I could walk you, I don't have the information with me tonight, but I could walk you through history of about 10 different people that tried to unite Europe, and it has never worked. Why? Daniel tells us. It's not going to stick. Iron and clay will not stick. But it tells us here, there's going to be a kingdom that comes, and it's going to tumble down into, and roll right over, and, break, and, and crush into powder those other nations. Who is that kingdom? What is that kingdom? 
It is the kingdom of God. Jesus over and over again said, now is the kingdom of God. Now has come the kingdom of God. He came to usher in the kingdom of God. Daniel here, he was looking at the issues he heard from God and he was immediately, absolutely, he was declaring his allegiance to the kingdom of God. And so if you and I in this pagan world are going to survive intact as a follower of Jesus Christ, our allegiance must be with the kingdom of God. It cannot be in the kingdom of this world. We are indeed in, but we are not of the kingdom of this world. It's not going to be without struggle. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he came to that moment when his real mission in life was on the line, and he was in that garden, he was struggling. And the Bible tells us here in the book of Luke that he was sweating, as it were, drops of blood. I'm not quite sure what that means. I don't think it means that he was sweating blood. But I think it means as it were. I think the sweat was coming down in huge, big drops. It was a workout. Sweating as it were drops of blood. As he makes... That commitment to God, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Sometime in our walk on the globe, we will be brought to a place, our garden, where we will be sweating out who are we going to give our allegiance to? The allegiance to the world that we're a part of? Or is the kingdom of God going to be that which carries our heart? Daniel chose wisely. Every one of us needs to choose who we will serve. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus came to that time of temptation, he had 40 days of prayer before he was tempted. And I will say this tonight. Let me just grab a last couple thoughts here before I close this this up here. Prayer is such a vital thing. If you are a praying Christian, your faith will going to carry you in the day of battle. But if you are not a praying Christian, you will need to carry your faith. And that will be exhausting. God buries his workmen, but the work must go on. The hammers of time and society and all cultures Beat away on the anvil of the word of God, but God's word does not change. The hammers wear out and are thrown away, but the anvil of the word continues on and does not change. In a changing society where everything is being redefined, 
by governments that are godless and by cultures that are godless and do not have a heart after God. God's people have a word that does not change. And the book of Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The word of our God shall stand forever. It shall stand the test of time and eternity. Let's stand for a word of prayer.